News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been following along with this story that is happening in Ottawa regarding General Jonathan Vance. Now, the federal conservatives are demanding even more hearings because a parliamentary committee heard testimony last week suggesting that the prime minister's chief of staff knew about that misconduct allegations a few years ago against the general. Meanwhile, members of the House of Commons Defence Committee are scheduled this week to finish a report on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the Canadian Armed Forces. But this really seems to be the focus of so much discussion. Conservative committee members have written to the clerk asking for further hearings into how the allegations against General Vance were handled. This has turned into quite the controversial story, especially when you hear some of the details on what was going on with these allegations. Like, it's just crazy. So we are going to be talking more about that coming up. But also, uh, we talking about polling. Last week was a big week because it was the federal budget, right? And that was a budget that we hadn't had in a couple of years. It was supposed to be quite the impact on people. Well, Ipsos has done some polling on this about, you know, how people are feeling about the budget. Did they even pay attention to what the budget was? And boy, the results on those are quite surprising. That's coming up. But right now, let's get to this story about General Jonathan Vance and how it's been unfolding. Joining us is Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Listen, I've been following along your story here. And this one from late last week about the the woman who was involved with General Vance and what was going on, like this one is mind boggling. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so this is the woman who we initially sat down and interviewed uh, back in February, Major Kelly Brennan, who said that she had had a 20-year relationship with Vance, um, that she it started off consensually, but she felt she couldn't say no to him uh, as he advanced and significantly outranked her in her career, um, that he asked her to keep it a secret, that um, they she testified on Thursday uh, have two children together. This is what she told the committee and that he has never paid child support. Um, and for those who kind of shrug and say, well, isn't that consensual? Under military rules, you cannot have a relationship with somebody under your direct command because of the power dynamic. So that, right. uh, along with this uh, claim she's making that two of the children are in fact Vance's, uh, was pretty stunning for people here in Ottawa. So stunning, especially since he was asked about this, was he not, months ago? I asked him about this, yes. Yeah. Um, back when we went to him in February, I was aware of allegations that there were two children. I put that to him. I, I asked him about each of the children by name. Um, and he told me that he was not the father of the first child who I asked about. And when I asked about the second child, he said, I, I something along the lines of, I basically don't even know who these people are, who you're talking about. Um, so he has denied paternity of these children. Um, that was before Major Brennan made the claim publicly. We have reached out to General Vance, uh, who retired last week from the military, and uh, we did not receive a response after Major Brennan's testimony. This is just so shocking, Mercedes. So what do we know about who in the highest levels of government knew about these allegations? 
So we know now that uh, Katie Telford, the prime minister's chief of staff, was aware. And, and we had been asking the government for months whether this was the case, and they just wouldn't answer the question. Elder Marquez, who's a former senior advisor to Trudeau, testified on Friday, and he revealed that the reason he found out about this and started looking into it um, contradicted what Minister Sajjan had said at the committee, which was essentially that Sajjan's office had reached out uh, to Marquez and the PMO. Marquez testified it was Katie Telford or her assistant, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, who asked him to look into this. Uh, so that connects it right up to the top. As we know, Prime Minister Trudeau has said he was not aware, but that raises a whole new set of questions about if the Chief of Staff is aware of something like that, why wouldn't they say something? Uh, they now did not know what the nature of the allegations were, because of course this was that that email that we obtained uh, that is allegedly from Vance, making reference to the uh, clothing optional vacation destination. But Marquez testified that he had the impression it was likely serious and sexual. Um, and if he had that impression, it leads to questions as to whether Telford also had that impression. And if she did, uh, why didn't she or anybody else raise this with the prime minister? It seems like this came up. Everyone moved very quickly at the political level, but they handed it over to PCO. And as soon as they handed it over to PCO, uh, PCO just kind of said, well, we don't have a name and they didn't have the email. So that was the end of that. It's just, you know, some of the details just continue to make me shake my head, Mercedes, when you tell this story about this was somebody who was at the highest level of the Canadian Armed Forces. And were there any repercussions for these stories being being around, being known by the highest levels? At the time, no. Um, there were certainly rumors from people who I've spoken to. I've spoken to dozens of, of military members who say they had heard about this. Um, the problem was they'd always kind of heard about it, not necessarily seen it in all of the cases, uh, or certainly most of the cases, they, they'd not actually seen it, they'd heard about it. But it leads to the question of if this was um, a rumor that was being discussed to this degree in the military, perhaps why more of a fine-toothed comb wasn't taken to investigate the allegations that were being made to see if there might be more there or something substantive or other situations. Uh, when the um, Trudeau PMO looked into this, they didn't, uh, it, it appears, talk to people who were able to tell them that there, in fact, had been two police investigations in 2015 into Vance um, that had to do with a, an alleged relationship with a subordinate who, by the way, is now his wife. Um, she was uh, his JAG officer, his legal officer when he was deployed to Italy. She's an American. Uh, they got engaged and got married. The Harper government uh, actually asked him about that in his interview to become the CDS, whether this could be a problem. Uh, those investigations never charged him. They also never released their findings. Uh, so it seems like while people looked around, they didn't go back very far in time, despite the fact that that email was actually from 2012. Hmm. Okay, so what happens next now? Are there more hearings, more questions? So now the Conservatives want the Defence Committee to continue because they want to hear from Telford. They're saying there's a contradiction between Telford's test, pardon me, between um, Sar Minister Sajjan's testimony uh, and Elder Marquez's testimony. Typically, staffers do not appear in front of committees, so I'd be very surprised if that happens but they're certainly going to be trying for that. Um, the government has promised action. 
They promised money in the budget and they did put a number on that. It's over $200 million. Uh, what we don't know is when they're going to do a lot of the things that they've promised or what they're going to look like. They promised an independent probe looking into sexual misconduct and in particular the allegations uh, into General Vance. They have promised that there will be some sort of an external watchdog, but they won't commit as to whether that should be somebody who is reporting to Parliament. Uh, and I've been told that they are in fact going to create a position within the military that has to do with conduct related to racism or sexual misconduct that will be a senior posting. So I'm hearing those things are likely to be announced uh, with more specificity within the next couple of weeks. And then, of course, we still have the ongoing police investigations, and we don't know um, what the timeline is on those. Mercedes, thank you for the update this morning. Thank you for having me. It's Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, to read more of her coverage on this story. And her coverage has been remarkable. You can check out globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a lot going on in the world of federal politics, as we were just talking about with Mercedes Stevenson, especially last week. We also had that federal budget and everybody said, oh, this budget was a huge deal, right? We, It's been a couple of years since we had a federal budget. And, oh, it's going to be the blueprint for the next election. Yeah, but how did it go over with the public? Well, that's what's really interesting. So Ipsos Reid has done a poll on that. And Sean Simpson, the vice president of Ipsos, joined us earlier to break it all down for us. Sean, thank you for joining us this morning to talk about this. First off, so this was polling that was done after the federal budget came down? That's right. Immediately uh, after the budget, we were in field last Tuesday and Wednesday to gauge Canadians' immediate reaction to Christian Freeland's first budget. Okay, and what did they say? Well, they didn't say a whole lot, actually. <laughs> you know, we, 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 uh, politicians, media, you know, politicos, we tend to follow budgets closely for all the minutia and and uh, and detail. But the, the vast majority of Canadians uh, just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, "Well, I wasn't really paying attention," or "I think it's a wash for me." For those who did have an opinion, about one in five said, "You know what? This is a pretty good budget. I'll give it a thumbs up." The other one in five said. Yeah, I'm not too excited about it. I'm going to give it a thumbs down. Okay, that is so fascinating because I mean, we waited a couple of years for this budget. There was all this buildup. People were saying that, oh, we're gonna. This is going to be the blueprint for the next election. And you're telling me Canadians kind of went, meh. Yeah, that's exactly the sound that they made uh, when, when I think they were filling out, out the uh, out the poll. Um, and I think, you know, in large part, it's because uh, for the vast majority of Canadians, 79% of them, they don't think the budget actually impacts them either way. They don't think it'll hurt them. They don't think it'll help them. Uh, only 9% believe it'll help them. Only 12% believe the budget will, will personally hurt them. So, um, you know, if, if it's uh, a relatively kind of foreign document that people don't believe actually will have any relevance to their to their daily lives then then why would they get very excited about it so did this get reflected then in how they're feeling about certain political parties right now yeah, in fact, uh, we find that there's very little change from the, the poll that we just did for you guys a couple of weeks uh, ago. Uh, the Liberals are still in the driver's seat. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, they had a 10-point lead. It's now an 11-point lead, so that's all you know, margin of error stuff. Um, the, the two things I think are notable in the most recent results. One is that the NDP um, has, has risen a little bit. They're still only at 19%, which is sort of traditionally where they are, but in, in recent polls, we found them towards the mid-teens, um, so they, they may be a proxy for you know none of the above. If if if, if people don't like the Conservatives or the Liberals, and the other notable thing is. Um 
is in Quebec. Uh, for the last couple of months, we've seen a, a log jam between the Bloc Québécois and the Liberals uh, essentially tied in support, which is really good news for the Liberals because they need to win a lot of seats in, in Quebec in order to, to have a shot at a majority government. Um, but in this last week, what we're seeing is that the Bloc have moved ahead now by about five points. It still remains to be seen whether that will will stick. But if the, if, if the Liberals have... Uh, you know, a 20-point lead in Ontario, which they which they do now, we're close to 20-point lead, and uh, are competitive in in Quebec. Uh, we're in majority territory. So, what were things like in other provinces? Like, what about BC, for instance? Yes, in British Columbia, the results are fairly stable, uh, but we have the Liberal Party at 37% of the popular vote, and then we have the NDP and the Conservatives tied at about uh, 28% of the vote, uh, with the Green Party actually doing a little bit worse than uh, than it historically has done. It's at 6% in BC. Normally, we see the Green Party doing uh, you know well into the teens within British Columbia, uh, but I, I'm, I'm wondering whether... Uh, Canadians are still uh, becoming familiar with with a new leader and and perhaps they're missing Elizabeth May a little bit. But that is so interesting that it's so diverse, it seems like, in B.C., divided between those three major parties. It is. It's really the the only province where we have a a three-horse race. And this is often the case. Uh, and 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 because uh, you know different regions of the of the province really uh, tend to to favor different parties, and so when you roll it all up, uh, it, it's it's a three way race. Uh, at times the Conservatives do a little bit better. At times the Liberals do a little bit better, and at times the NDP do. So uh, you know election night, uh, if it's not close between the Liberals and the and the and the Conservatives in terms of who's going to form government, it will still likely be close uh, in terms of whether the Liberals can form a majority government and uh, that decision may in fact be made uh, in British Columbia where uh, every seat uh, counts when when the parties are so close to each other. All right, Sean, thanks for your time this morning. It's been my pleasure. Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos. If you want to weigh in on those poll findings, you can email me, simi at cknw. This is Mornings with Simi. What was that all about? That was certainly the reaction of more than a few people at the end of the Academy Awards last night, myself included. They tried to do things differently, hosting them in a larger uh, space like Union Station in downtown Los Angeles. Once again, there wasn't a host and, you know, they may have pulled all that off until the very end. For more on the Academy Awards, we're going to chat now with Chris Jancelowitz from the Global News Entertainment Desk. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. That was quite the end, the Academy Awards. Were you surprised? <laughs> yeah, you know, I woke up and I was like, did that really happen? Um, <laughs> yeah, so it just, it, it was like, it was almost like a moment in time where I was suspended. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing after all this buildup. Um, so at the end of the Oscars, normally what they do is they have the best picture, um, close things out. Um, so that's the biggest award and, you know, everyone's talking about it. What's it going to be? And so they ended up presenting that uh before they presented the Best Actor and Best Actress Awards, which I thought was very odd. So I thought, okay, they must be building to something here. So I think everyone thought that, you know, Chadwick Boseman, who of course died this year, would, or last year, sorry, would have, um, you know, taken the award and then that would have been a great closer for what was a very strange award ceremony. Instead, it ends up being uh, Anthony Hopkins, who was not even there. there. <laughs> it was so bizarre. They designed the whole show around the idea that they think Chadwick Boseman's going to win Best Actor, and then he doesn't. And he and Anthony Hopkins it just and it ended. That was it. That was the end of the show. And I was like, okay, good night, everyone. And I just was like, whoa. And it was a black and white photo of Anthony Hopkins. It was just the most. 
anticlimactic ending I think I've ever seen to an award show. And, you know, I've covered this for a good 12 years now, maybe more, every single year. And uh, I have to say it was the most lackluster, um, strange, like weird award shoved in there. You know, they had a lot of tributes to people like philanthropists and like excluding the Tyler Perry one, which I thought was pretty good. But other than that, it was just weird pandering to the movie industry um and it was distasteful almost um considering people are suffering around the world and this is what you're choosing to highlight is is the power of movies and this it just felt really tacky almost well some of it was pretty self-indulgent i thought you're right because also the you know how normally in years they have speeches and then they play people off if the Mm -hmm. speeches are going to i will never complain about that ever again because These they didn't do that this year, and honestly, I sometimes I turn the channel, Chris, and I'd go back and I thought, my God, the speech is still going on. It was interminable. Um, yes. Some of them were like a good ten minutes, uh, and it was a lot of you know. Someone someone said this to me, and I think this is a really great quote: is that you know the Oscars are no longer about the audience; it's about the industry. And then ever since someone told me that, that's all I've noticed: is speeches are just lists of names that yeah. no one knows. And I understand you want to thank people. But let's not forget what the Oscars are about. And if they're wondering why the ratings are bad, um, you might want to reconsider your approach. Um, really limit those speeches. You know, these are actors. You know, it boggles the mind that you guys can't come up with better speeches than right. this. You know? Um, right. Like, Tyler Perry's was great. Yes. Um, there were a few that were really well done speeches. And then the majority, I would say like 80 to 90% were just awful. I mean, I like Chloe Zhao's speech. I liked yeah. uh, Frances McDormand's speech because she just said, yeah. thank you and walked off the stage. So there, <laughs> there were a couple of good ones there. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And, but, you know, the majority was just this like, you know, just so long winded and, and people don't know who these people are. No one knows who Barry is. No one knows who David is. Like, right. you know, it's not interesting to people. So if I were a lay person and I did not have to watch it, I probably would have switched the channel 10 minutes in. Oh, I switched the channel so many times, right? And that usually (laughs) during somebody's long speech. And then I kept coming back to see, well, I guess I should see what the next thing is. And I just, I I couldn't believe that they went over time in a show that didn't have clips and performances. And I was like, how did they go over time when there was nothing in this show? Not only that, but there was no clips, really. Like there was a few clips. So it was people just, you know, when you go to a presentation and someone has a a, bullet point list up on the screen and, and then they choose, they proceed to, read the whole list even though you can read that's what it felt like to me <laughs> so true. i'm like why are you why are you just reading this list i, I want to see visuals like you're, you're presenting yeah. the visual effect award show me the visuals. You're not even showing any visual effects <laughs> like it's it's craziness to me it was how they presented the awards you know what i think we're both in agreement on this one listen chris thanks for your time this morning <laughs> anytime this is mornings with simi Let's talk about an amazing vaccine. And no, we are not talking about COVID-19 here. We're talking about a group of researchers who believe they've developed the world's most effective malaria vaccine, which reportedly provides 77% effectiveness. Now, this was in a randomized trial, but malaria has been a thorn in the side of health officials all over the world for centuries. It kills half a million people every year. Now, the University of Oxford and its partners published the results just on Friday. 
that they say this actually could surpass the World Health Organization's target of 75% effectiveness. So let's find out what a game changer this is. Joining us now is Dr. Michael Curry, Clinical Associate Professor at the Department of Emergency Medicine at UBC. Dr. Curry, thanks for joining us. Good morning. How significant is this? It's a, it's a big it's a big discovery. So it's refreshing to talk about another vaccine, but malaria is unlike COVID nineteen. It's it's an illness that has bedeviled humanity from ancient times. It's probably killed more people than any other infectious illness in history, and so it still bedeviled parts of Africa, parts of South Asia, and parts of South America. And so it's a big game changer because this illness has been a problem for so long. We do have effective treatments for it. However, we're still losing, we're still losing about three to 400 million people are being infected every year. And as you mentioned, about half a million people a year are dying from it. So this intervention, which was targeted at children, could save the lives potentially of hundreds of thousands of children per year. Now, Dr. Curry, what has made malaria so challenging in developing a vaccine before now? So I think there's two main factors. First off, it's a complicated organism. You know, looking at COVID-19, it's a little ball of protein and nucleic acid. The parasite that causes malaria is a much more complicated organism. Its cells are similar in complexity, if not more complex, than human cells. The second thing is it has a very complex life cycle. So it goes through a number of different phases within the human body. It's possible for people to have the disease in their body but not bothering them for over a year after they're initially infected. And it ping-pongs back and forth between mosquitoes and people. So we've had success fighting malaria. Malaria used to be endemic in North America Parts of Canada would have malaria 100, 150 years ago, and we've been able to eradicate it in more temperate climates. But in the tropical climate, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, we've had a real difficulty eradicating this illness. Right. And even some of the treatments that we have up until now, like they are not easy to take, are they? I know there are some drugs, but I've heard about the, the nightmares and things that some of these drugs can cause. Yes, some of them some of them can be difficult, and the biggest challenge with malaria is resistance. And so, the original anti-malaria drug, quinine, uh, was something that that a lot of resistance developed among the malaria parasite, and just quit working at the beginning of the 20th century. And we've been in a race with the malaria parasite. It develops resistance very quickly. We develop new drugs, and even the new, one of the newest drugs we've got something called artemisin to fight off malaria. There's cases that came out just a couple of weeks ago that this new drug, which we did not know of significant resistance, there are resistant uh, strains of malaria developing. And that just came out a couple of weeks ago. So it's refreshing that we now have a fairly effective vaccine potentially on the horizon. Right, potentially. How long has this been worked on by scientists, the idea of a vaccine for malaria? Decades. So we've had a vaccine available for malaria for about 10 years. It's hit the market. However, the effectiveness of that vaccine was around 50% and resistance has developed to it. So in the field, it's only about 30, 35% effective nowadays. But prior to that, we've been working on a vaccine for malaria since the 1960s. 
Wow. Okay. So then isn't there a concern then, Dr. Curry, that this fight against malaria, it, it can never end? Because what if there's resistance even to this new vaccine? So there is that concern. It is an organism because it affects so many people that, you know, only if a small percentage is resistant, the genetic pressure, the evolutionary pressure selects for survivors with resistance. But we have had successes. As I mentioned, it was an endemic illness in Europe and North America at one point in time. And the nice thing about malaria is it only affects mosquitoes and people. So if you can keep one generation of people and mosquitoes in an area malaria-free, and you don't have people from outside that region bringing the disease back in, you can eradicate it. And we have done that in big chunks of the world. What kind of an impact would this have then in those parts of the world where malaria still causes such a toll? What would it do to wipe it out? The biggest impact would be a huge reduction in childhood mortality. And so what's happening, I've I've worked in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's really tragic. What malaria does, it affects young children. And the young children that have some genetic predisposition to fighting off malaria, they survive in adulthood. And so basically, you're selecting for people that have some ability to fight off malaria. However, hundreds of thousands of young children, usually before the age of five, when they get their first bad case of malaria, because it's almost inevitable in certain parts of the world that you will get infected by malaria before you're about five years old, those children are dying. And we can, you know, save up to half a million lives per year with an effective program against malaria. All right. So then that shows how amazing this potential is for this vaccine. What happens next after this? Now we know this particular part. So what's happening next is it's going to be what's called a phase three trial. And this is a real world trial where we're going to be or where these researchers are going to be experimenting with thousands of children in parts of Africa. The original study that we're talking about was out of Burkina Faso. There's going to be a larger study involving children in Tanzania and in Kenya as well that are going to be tested out. And this is going to be a real-world application with thousands of children. It will take, however, a couple of years for those results to come out. Right, but still, that sounds pretty hopeful. With the amount of excitement that I saw generated by this, it does seem like the world's kind of researchers are very excited about this. It is, and it can really make a difference. Having worked in South Af- Southern Africa, you know, the amount of suffering caused by malaria is incredible. And uh, we tend to not think about it in North America because it's not something we see locally, but around the world, it's still a major issue. Oh, big story then. Dr. Curry, thank you for your time. Thank you, and have a great morning. You too. That's Dr. Michael Curry, Clinical Associate Professor at the Department of Emergency Medicine at UBC, talking about the news. Researchers all over the world, very excited to hear this, that the University of Oxford and its partners published some results late last week showing that their malaria vaccine is the first to surpass the World Health Organization's target of 75% effectiveness. A malaria vaccine or a really, really effective way to tackle malaria has been lacking, as Dr. Curry pointed out, for not just decades, but centuries in the modern world. All right, next for us, it's time for the Studio Vault contest on this Monday morning. What's it going to be? Is it going to be money? Is it going to be putting your name into the uh, vault to see if you're going to win the grand prize, which is now heading towards $2,000? Well, it'll be your chance to choose. But first, 
you have to play. 604-280-9898. We are looking for a contestant to play our Studio Vault contest, and we're going to play coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. We're not winning the fight against the opioid overdose epidemic. Remember last week we talked about how paramedics in this province said that there was a day last week when they received the highest number of overdose calls in the province that they had ever received before. So one of the topics that we've also been discussing is the idea of how businesses can step in and perhaps help and do more. And now publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver, Kirk LaPointe, has also written a piece about this. Let's talk to him about that. He joins us now. Good morning, Kirk. Good morning, Cindy. Now, what made you take this tactic? Why do you think businesses need to do more? Well, first of all, in my experience, businesses are very good at telling governments what they need to do. Uh, They're not so good at necessarily recognizing what they have to do themselves. And so one of the reasons I wrote was really to just say, listen, this is now, uh, it's very, very evident. This is in our communities. Uh, these are people that you're likely dealing with. These might be your employees. They certainly are your customers, your suppliers. These are people that you come into connection with. It's now a problem that business needs to apprehend and, and contribute what it can in order to try to mitigate the problems. Do you think that up until now, a lot of businesses perhaps have had the attitude that, well, no, no, it doesn't affect us, it's, it's other people? I agree. I think that that's been one of the real problems with it is that there is a bit of a stigma that business is attached to to this, that it's, it's kind of in a remote group. It's not really those that are quite connected into it. And yet, when you take a look at the data, it's very clear that, um, for instance, a lot of industries uh, really have uh, injuries that then promote uh, opioid use uh, for painkilling and for post-surgical uh, uh, alleviation of, of pain. And, uh, and so you know, it really is right in their midst. And, and, I, and I know it's, a, it's not a great connection to make or a great comparison to make, but in a lot of ways, businesses have had to ap- apprehend the issues of diversity and inclusion as well. Um, and, and this is something that is really about business to it. And it, you know, to be crass about it, it's actually good business to confront an issue like this because it's contributing to absenteeism, to lack of productivity, to a certain amount of detachment from work. And, and in order for business to be most efficient, it, it needs its employees to, to really be, you know, in a way uh, safe yeah. from harm. And yeah. That's a good point because it seems like businesses are grasping that idea, right? That these issues that up and, you know, for years they didn't deal with, for instance, like childcare, they thought mm-hmm. that it wasn't their area, but it turns out, yeah, if you can help your employees, that will benefit your business. No question. Childcare, I mean, you can see uh, issues of governance uh, are emerging. Um, and I think, you know, I think the pandemic, like a lot of things, has, has disrupted all kinds of systems. And, and I think now that employers are recognizing that they actually have to extend their obligations uh, in, in, to share some responsibilities about how employees are, are dealing with their anxieties. And, uh, and, and it's difficult when you have so many people working remotely. Uh, but that's actually, you know, a bit of a test of business in order to try to, you know, frankly, pry a little bit more into the lives of the people that work for them in order to to help them, but in order to and to reach out uh, during these difficult times, and so that the people are not simply isolating and dealing with their problems remotely. How do you think businesses can do that? Where can they start? Well, first off, I think you have to take the stigma 
out of uh, out of drug use and drug addiction. I mean, we, you know, we we we've done reasonably well in business at taking the stigma out of alcohol, uh, and uh, and and so that's become something I think a bit of a, a pathway for decent discussions and all of this. Um, I think there have to be some judgment-free discussions and 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 you know forums. I think for employees to share what's going on in their lives. Uh, and also to deal with the fact that many of many employees, particularly older employees, um, are dealing with prescriptions. They're dealing with post-surgical care. They're, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, employers have have I think a good opportunity in there to have these discussions to to deal with it. And then I think you know, in, on a larger scale, I think business has to join the call, really for you know for for our the way we're waging war. On uh, on drug uh, drug distribution and drug use, we have to be part of that uh, conversation for a safer drug supply, and we have to realize that you know we, we ought to be applying those resources to treatment and to aversion, and uh, and to really investing in uh, in a much more hopeful uh, plan. You make the great point though in your piece that you know a lot of these addictions they start with a workplace related injury which that to me in and of itself makes itself a business's business to to, to oh, fix yeah. this. And no question Simi. I mean that that's and if you take a look at, at areas like the construction industry for instance um you have a lot of the deaths um particularly across North America from the opioid crisis um right into the construction industry and it's a lot of people who have injured themselves had to take on painkillers, have lost their jobs, have really no particular uh, physical capacity to work any longer, and become quite despondent. And and uh, and in a lot of cases, you're dealing as well with um, with professionals who, frankly, um, have anxieties and who decide at a given time it's, that they'll experiment and that they'll try something. They'll, they'll be coaxed into doing something, and and they don't know really what they're doing, and so they they wind up in these situations where they they you know they have a, a poison drug of some sort. So it's it's important that you know all of these uh, matters get put on the table, um, and and you know it'd be nice if business, in the same way that it really fights for tax cuts or for investments in an industry, would really push the government around uh, around a, a greater degree of commitment into this. And, and I know that there are increased amounts and. Last week's provincial budget had a, a fairly a large mental health uh, uh, commitment in terms of investment, but as we as we can see with the data every month, um, it's not nearly enough. Do you think targeting certain industries might help too? You talked about the construction industry. Certainly, that's a lot of this is dealing with pain on the job too. Yeah, it is. Uh, no question. You have to start in some places. Uh, that, that being said, um, I think what we can see is that it, it's not wise to let. Uh, any element of business off the hook on this one, because again, you, the more that you decide that this is a sectoral problem or a you know a, a, a right. narrow problem, the more you ignore the fact that the data is telling you it's pretty well everywhere, and it's across income, education, uh, all, all kinds of uh, indices about where it exists, and uh, it's among women, uh, it's among uh, older people, uh, it's no longer uh, again those people off to the side of what any business would consider to be its core. Do you think that given the fact that we talk about labor shortages, right? The fact that employers have such a hard time finding employees these days, it, it makes us their business too. It is. And look, again, I think the pandemic is changing a lot of the relationship between employers and employees. 
Um, some of it will be really for the better. And I think this is one of those areas where if you can have uh, these really this kind of dialogue in your workplace um, among your employees uh, to really recognize the degree of care that you have for them, uh, then I think it ends up breeding a stronger loyalty um, and, and again, a, a lot more tolerance in a workplace when people, in fact, do encounter problems that there is a, you know, there's, there's a path out for them and the path involves a connection into the people who employ them. Well, Kirk, thanks for joining us this morning. Lovely to talk to you. That's Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. You should check out his piece that he wrote where he says business leaders need to do more in the battle against this opioid overdose crisis. And he makes some great points in there that, yeah, a lot of people who are dying are people who are working, their addictions are hidden. And for businesses to do something about this, they they can, because this is something that they're probably seeing in their workforce, but they're not quite sure how to be able to deal with this. More than half of these deaths uh, have followed work-related injuries. Like That's how addiction starts. People get injured on the job, they get medicated for it, and then they want to keep being medicated for it too. So it's a complicated situation. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's not a concern right now for school board budgets. You've probably been hearing in the news about what has been going on with them. Revenue shortfalls from things like a lack of international students have led some districts to say they're already looking at shortfalls in the millions of dollars. Plus, we still have so many districts, teachers in particular, voicing concerns about COVID outbreaks and spread in their schools. So let's talk to Jennifer Whiteside, the Education Minister of BC, about that and more this morning. Good morning and thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Have you heard from the school districts that are concerned about their revenue shortfalls? Um, well, you know, certainly we've been we've been watching uh, what, uh, what what's happening with districts as they go through their annual budgeting process, and I. I'd say that where we're at right now is not not terribly different than than where where we're usually at in the system at, at this time at this time as budget as we're coming to the end of one uh, fiscal year. We don't quite know how uh, school districts are going to, are going to end the year yet in terms of whether they'll be in surplus or not, and uh, and of course they're they're planning for September. But I, I will say that we've. You know, we saw, I think, a very positive uh, provincial budget last week in that we are investing uh, uh, a lot of money in education. Our, our lift is over 6%. This year alone, there'll be an additional $437 million for school districts across the province. And over the next three years, uh, over uh, $1.22 billion. That sounds like, though, that you're going to be taking kind of a wait-and-see approach with some of the districts, although I feel like this is going to give parents especially more anxiety about the school year. And does anybody really need more anxiety right now? I, yeah, and I, I have to say, Sam, and I do, I, I mean, I regret the, the distress that there is in some areas uh, where, uh, and, and in particularly in, in some districts or where, where, you know, districts might be grappling uh, with particular issues around structural deficits and having to sort out how they... Um, how they adjust their budgets or plan their budgets to meet their meet their their strategic goals. So, uh, you know, for example, in Victoria, I reached out to the chair last week. I'm going to reach out to her again this week. Ministry staff have have reached out to that to that district to see how we can help uh, to see how we can f- first and foremost really understand what what's happening and, and then help. I mean, the, the other point to make here is that that school districts across the province have 
collectively over $380 million in accumulated surpluses. And, and part of the, the role of those accumulated surpluses is not only to be there for, you know, rainy day funds or to fund one-time expenditures, but also to sort of help with this, with this process of, um, uh, you know, at year-end filling in gaps um, as, they, as they, they sort out what the enrollment right. looks like for September, because the budgets in education are constantly being adjusted based on enrollment. So is it fair to say then that there will, if, if there is a crunch for a particular district, that the ministry is going to be listening? Well, we're absolutely, we're absolutely listening uh, all the time. I mean, we, we, we think that we've provided um, in this budget with, uh, you know, give, given the percentage lift and given that we're you know, fully funding the labor settlements and we were, we're, we're funding the, uh, all of the enrollment growth. I mean, we, we think that that's a really solid foundation for districts to, to work with and uh, will uh, certainly, I know there are concerns as well about um, uh, about funding for for COVID related expenses, um, and, of, and of course, as you know, there were considerable contingencies put aside in the in the provincial budget, so we can assess that. and mm-hmm. And we're in a process right now of working with public health and with all of our partners to plan on what September looks like, and when we we know that we'll be in a better position to uh, to assess that impact. Now let's talk about what's left of this school year here. We know that, you know, community spread of COVID-19 has a a huge concern. There's been constant uh, raising of awareness about what's going on in our schools. Is there more that we can do at this point to prevent that from happening in our schools? Simi, you know, that that is a question that um, we all uh, get up every morning thinking about what can we do better? What can we what should we be doing differently? Um, And I we're talking with uh, with superintendents, with teachers, with uh, with staff, with vice principals, trustees, uh, you know, uh, every week about what do things look like? What should we be doing differently? Uh, So that is an ongoing discussion. Our provincial steering committee is now meeting twice a week as we navigate this really pretty, you know, this really tough part of the pandemic, but also as we look ahead to to September. So uh, what I will say is that I I think that that frontline education workers have been extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary in their compassion and their commitment to working to ensure that kids can continue to learn um, in, in, in in classrooms and continue to be connected to their schools, because we know how absolutely critical that is not just for learning but also for the mental health supports for the meal programs for all of the other supports that kids get in school yeah let's talk a little bit about mental health supports then looking ahead to a a time like you know whether it's next fall next spring when we're getting more back to normal what are you thinking about the kind of support that kids are going mm-hmm. to need because of how stressful the last 18 mm-hmm. months have been some of them are falling behind how do we help them catch up Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there's that, that that's, a, that's also something that, that's very much under discussion and very much a concern across the, for, for the ministry and for, for all of our partners. Uh, they're, they're, we're going to be making an announcement uh, with, uh, with uh, Minister Malcolmson, the uh, uh, Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, later this morning about additional funding, significant additional funding for, um, for, for children and youth. Um, and, and, mu- and much of that funding we, w- is going to be support- directly supporting uh, districts and schools. All right, so then what are the next yeah. steps here? Obviously, as you said, you wake up every day. This is stuff that you're thinking about, though, but clearly some districts are still hot spots, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely. And I, you know, I can tell you we're, we're in touch with Surrey, for example, on a, on a regular basis, and we know that the, the initiative to vaccinate all education um, staff in Surrey has um, uh, uh, certainly helped with respect to 
um, us, you know, you know, you know, being able to, you know, op- operate the schools. Of course, there's still a lot of COVID in Surrey, and and that we know that that Surrey is still is still a hot spot. So of course, there are still um, many exposure notifications, and that's a situation that we're that we're watching very carefully. Uh, Dr. Ballum and her team are working very hard on the uh, to to you know to roll out vaccine to other hotspot areas. We've seen uh, education staff in in Vancouver, in the Tri Cities, in Delta, and other parts of the province. Um, um, uh, getting vaccinated, so it's a, it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, we're we're working at it from a, from a number of different angles. We've got the vaccines, we have our safety plans, and we're being very, uh, very attentive to what's happening on the ground. Well, what will you say right now then to parents, to teachers, people in the system who I know you said that this is the normal part of the system right now with budget shortfalls, waiting to see how it you know plays out, but th- that's just an added concern and stress right now where it feels like the system just doesn't need that what do you say to people who say can can we not get past this well i guess what i I, what i would say to that is that we um we're we're going to work to support districts where there are uh where there there are a significant concern where they where they need support for example you know i mentioned i mentioned victoria and you know we uh, have been, of course, in touch with the with the um, uh, with the school trustees association, and haven't heard. I mean, there are you know some concerns, but we haven't heard um, uh, 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 you know a, a lot from many other from many other districts. So again, it's a you know I, I realize that it's you know it, it, in, in our budgeting and education because we don't we don't have the school year sort of mapping onto our fiscal year. It creates this. Um, the, the, this gap that uh, that, as I say, folks are uh, d- districts and boards are trying to sort of na- navigate it every year. So I would just encourage folks to um, uh, just just hang hang on while while districts work through this process and do their due diligence around talking to people in their communities about what the priorities are. Because I think it's an important part of the process. It's part of what boards, school boards, are there for, is to ensure that the delivery of education of the education program meets the local local needs and what people in in in, in the community um, are, are looking for so that, that 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 requires a process of, of ongoing discussion you raise a good point though because I know many people would say try getting access to some of some of those school board meetings because of the pandemic for various reasons that if parents do have concerns or teachers have concerns those school board meetings are not as accessible as they used to be that's uh, well. That's an interesting point to me. I hadn't uh, actually hadn't hadn't heard that, and I, um, I I would think actually that in some respects, having uh, you know one of the one of the outcomes of the shift that we've made to the world of video conferencing and zooming is that in some respects it actually should be giving access broader access to um, to folks who might not parents who might not, for example, be able to. Um, you know, get out to a physical right. location to go and participate in a meeting. So that's interesting. I'd be interested to hear more about that and um, work mm-hmm. with districts to try and address that because I think it's you know it's it, it's it's imperative that it's a very open process. I mean, we all we're all looking for the same thing. We all we all want the best experience and to do the best that we can to support kids. Well, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks so much, Simi.